It's Tuesday, June 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More Americans are living solo, and the companies that want their business are upending generations of family-focused products and marketing and catering to single-person households with smaller appliances, individual packaging, and giant toilet paper rolls. Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how many people are living alone now and how they are buying things differently. Next, a new study is exposing the health risks of gene-editing human embryos. It appears that the genetic variation that a Chinese scientist was trying to recreate when he edited twin girls' DNA may be more harmful than helpful to their overall health. A study shows that people with this gene mutation were 21% less likely to live until the age of 76. Megan Molteni, who covers DNA technologies for Wired, joins us for the unintended consequences of gene editing. Finally, when bills pile up, some young people are turning to strangers on Venmo to raise cash. People are now just throwing out their mobile payment app handles and asking for money for a range of things. Rent, medical expenses, family funerals, and even small things like a cup of coffee or a trip to the nail salon. Suhana Hussein, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Urban millennials are certainly a major component in this trend, but so are aging consumers. Longer life expectancy is a big factor in the growth of single-person households. Joining us now is Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. More and more Americans are living alone, and companies desperately want their business, of course, so now they're catering their products to single-person households, and this is kind of changing years and years of the family-focused marketing and products. So we're getting smaller appliances, individual packaging, and my favorite thing that you talked about in your article, these giant toilet paper rolls. So let's start from the beginning. What's happening? How are the demographics changing that companies are now targeting single-person households? Almost a third of U.S. households are one person. And that is very much in contrast with how consumer products have been marketed, we can really say for generations, to families with usually four people and households that need a lot of portions of things. And that just simply is not in line with the full story of American consumers right now. And a wide range of industries are waking up to this and making changes. Now, we hear a lot of millennials and uh, older Americans increasingly starting to live alone, specifically with millennials. You always hear the stories of, you know, they're hitting the adulthood benchmarks later in life. They're starting families later. So I assume this has a lot to do with that part. And one of the things that comes to my head was there was a store out here in California called Fresh and Easy. This was a few years ago that was kind of a smaller neighborhood market thing, but everything was catered to single or maybe two people portion sizes. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that place went out of business. Uh, I might have gone out of business, definitely filed for bankruptcy, but maybe they were just a little too early on this curve. But this is kind of where everybody's going with their products now. Right. And there's a number of demographic trends that are contributing to this. So yes, urban millennials are certainly a major component in this trend, but so are aging consumers. Longer life expectancy is a big factor in the growth of single person households. You also have flocking to cities. 
So, of course, that requires different kitchen appliance sizes and serving sizes, even toilet paper roll <laughs> sizes. And rising wealth has also been a factor identified as a reason why Americans want to live alone, because a lot of Americans can now afford to. So let's talk about some of the things that are changing. There's been a lot of research done. Companies are trying to figure out how singles are buying differently. And they're finding out that they simply just don't necessarily want things that are smaller. Sometimes they're willing to pay more for certain things. One example in particular is you go to the market and you see all the fruits and vegetables, but you're increasingly seeing the pre-cut section, you know, whole watermelons that are already mm-hmm. cut, all the fruit. Those things cost more, but those are increasingly being sold and that single person households are buying those more. Something that Americans hate to do is pay for food that they know they're going to throw away. And so when you do have these pre-chopped assortments, you have a better handle when you're moving through produce aisle, let's say, of how much is actually there. And you feel value in paying for what you know you're going to use as opposed to paying for something that might be cheaper per use, but you know you're not going to use the whole thing. So one consumer I spoke with, she lives in Austin. She knows that she's paying almost twice as much for pre-chopped romaine lettuce, but her grocery store only sells the whole heads of romaine lettuce in packs of three. She so despises throwing away entire heads of lettuce that go off before she has a chance to eat it that she pays more for the pre-chopped lettuce. And you see that category by category. The same consumer, when she got a few promotions, she consciously splurged on more of these pre-chopped, pre-prepared groceries. Tell us a little bit about General Mills and their baking team. They tasked them to kind of see what's changing. And this is another example where they came up with a product. People are paying a little bit more for it, but it's the portion size is better for the single person household. This is an example that actually takes the single person household far beyond just urban millennials. This also addresses aging consumers. So they realized that the category sales for cake and brownie mixes in that aisle were going down, but sales were going up fast for individual slices of cake and brownies in the deli aisle. And they realized that consumers just wanted desserts in a different size. They liked the convenience and they also didn't want to throw away half a cake that they couldn't eat. So they launched things like a line called Mug Treats. That is meant to address the fact that people who grew up with Betty Crocker could still enjoy Betty Crocker, but in the product configuration that worked for them. Let's talk about my favorite part of this story. It's toilet paper. Now, I (laughs) I go to Costco. I love Costco because you do get to stock up on the bulk items. I'll get my toilet paper there, but then I have to stash away 36 rolls of toilet paper until I use it all, you know? So I have a cabinet in the bathroom that I put it in and I get creative with where I'm going to put it, all the rest (laughs) of it. So Procter & Gamble has released this huge toilet paper roll. It looks almost like the size of a commercial toilet paper roll kind of thing that's hidden in the wall, but... But this is the new thing that they're testing out right now. Procter & Gamble is an example of a company that is intensely studying this demographic. They're sending researchers into these consumers' apartments and studying how they live. And one thing they realized was that, like you, all these consumers had to really cram their extra stash of toilet paper in unusual places in their home. They kept seeing toilet paper rolls under people's beds and in kitchen cabinets, for example. And one solution is to keep your entire toilet paper inventory on one roll. And that reduces by nearly half the amount of storage space that you might need if you had bought the equivalent 24 rolls of toilet paper. 
And so single people tell them that this is enough toilet paper for two to three months. <laughs> and they sell it online. It's still in a test phase, but they it comes with a free stand because obviously this doesn't fit on most toilet exactly. paper rolls because it's gigantic. It's 12 inches in diameter. They sell it on the stand that will fit between the wall and a toilet. It's usually unused space in nearly any size bathroom. I kind of want to get one of these and then invite some friends over just to see what their reaction is for the huge <laughs> toilet paper roll. Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. People who have a mutation that basically knocks out or, or cripples that gene, if they have two copies of that, it also makes them immune to HIV AIDS. Joining us now is Megan Multaney, who covers DNA technologies, medicine, and genetic privacy for Wired. So there's a new study that's exposing some of the health risks of gene editing human embryos. We know the big story from last year when the Chinese scientist created embryo of these two twin girls, Lulu and Nana. He took out this certain gene using the CRISPR gene editing tool to give them an immunity to HIV and AIDS. The scientific community was all over the place on it. There was a ton of people saying, you know, it was highly unethical for him to do it. And part of that concern was the unknowns. You know, you edit somebody's genes, who knows what's going to happen in the future, how that will develop, what unintended consequences might come from there. And now that there's new study that is saying that people that have this specific gene mutation naturally are actually more likely to die earlier than others. Tell us a little bit about what this new study is about. It's important to point out that this was studied in a large group of people in the UK, so about 400,000 people in the UK biobank. It wasn't looking specifically at the twins. They are under state monitoring in China, but the new study has relevant for what that monitoring program might look like. And so basically, these were some population geneticists at, at the University of California, Berkeley. And what they did was look at these 400,000 genomes and try to find people who have the specific mutation that the Chinese scientist was trying to give the twins in his much maligned experiment. So the mutation is to a gene called CCR5, which is a receptor that's important in coordinating how your immune cells respond to infections. And people who have a mutation that basically knocks out or, or cripples that gene. If they have two copies of that, it also makes them immune to HIV AIDS because essentially the virus can't use that receptor to get into the immune cells and it, and it can't go on and infect them. So what the latest study found was that for the average person who has this double mutation who inherits two broken copies from their parents, they actually don't live as long on average. It's about a two-year shaving off of the lifespan, but the finding was pretty robust. It was about a 21% increase in death rates for people who have this double mutation. And the people that have this uh, CCR5 variation, they have other health effects too. It makes people a little more vulnerable to either West Nile virus or uh, different types of flu strains. Right. So the study didn't address what specifically caused these people to die at higher rates. But previous studies specifically in mice have shown that mice that have carried this double mutation, as you said, are more susceptible to other diseases. So the researchers hypothesized that the reason that they're seeing people die sooner is because something is getting to them. And the hypothesis right now is probably influenza, but it could be, as you said, some of these other diseases. You know, the researchers, in addition to finding that people 
died earlier within the cohort, they also found that uh, actually the first thing they noticed was that the number of volunteers in that study, in that UK biobank database who had the double mutation was appreciably smaller than what you would expect by chance, which basically means that something has removed those people from the population. And the likely explanation is that they're dying off at greater rates. This might be one of the most studied mutations in our history. Tell us a little bit about how its origin story, basically. How do we first come across this? What we know so far is based on tracking this mutation back through history. And what scientists think happened was that it arose kind of a single time in Northern Europe. And they traced that to a period of about a few thousand years ago. And this was a time when there was bubonic plague going around Europe. There was smallpox. There were all sorts of diseases that our ancestors were being exposed to. And so... The fact that one kid who was born with this mutation, he or she and their relatives went on to live at, high, at greater rates than their peers. And so the mutation proved to be really advantageous and it kind of moved through the population at a much faster rate than if it were kind of a, a neutral change to the genome. And so you actually see this gradient kind of from northern Europe to southern Europe in terms of prevalence. Today, the mutation occurs in about 10% of the population and about 1% of people are carriers of two of those co- two copies. But now it seems like it could be more of a problem with the prevalence of vaccines and, and other ways to treat some of those illnesses. Now, this could be something a little more detrimental. Yeah, that's exactly what the researchers concluded was that, you know, now that we have modern medicine, smallpox has been eradicated, we don't have plague, that actually what was advantageous at that time, a couple thousand years ago, is now basically detrimental. And and we're seeing that in the increased mortality. When this thing happened with that Chinese scientist and these twin girls, I mean, it was one of the biggest science stories of last year. And it's going to be something that really they're going to be studied for the rest of their lives just to see if something like this, you know, they're they're doing other studies trying to find out certain things, how this would affect editing genes in people, how it would affect them long term, how it would affect the human gene pool as a whole. And these are chief among the things why scientists were saying it was so unethical that he did this. These are the big questions. How do these minor changes really change everything else. The key takeaway here is that one mutation doesn't just do one thing, right? Genes operate on multiple levels. And so it's really important to consider all the possible effects of any mutations or other edits to the genome that humans are intentionally trying to create. Megan Multaney covering DNA technologies and medicine for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Smaller expenses mean a lot to some of the people who are putting these call-outs out, out there. Joining us now is Suhana Hussein, reporter for the LA Times. Crowdfunding has been around for a while now, mostly on places like GoFundMe or Kickstarter or Indiegogo for business purposes, things like that. But a lot of people are turning now to mobile payment apps such as Venmo or the Cash app to kind of do the same thing. Uh, Maybe they'll throw something out on social media. I need help with some medical bills or I want to go to this certain event and I need a little bit of money, whatever it could be. And they're throwing out their handles for these mobile payment apps and they're starting to get money on these things. Tell us a little bit about this whole new phenomenon. 
really, I just noticed from just being on Twitter that people will just throw out their handles for anything as big as like a surgery or a medical bill or rent or food, something that's a really fundamental cost of living to something pretty small, like a cup of coffee or a massage or a trip to a nail salon. So it runs like a pretty <laughs> wide range of things. You profiled somebody in your article who needed help. They needed some gas money. Their dad had gotten arrested in another state and they needed to make a long drive to get out there. Tell us a little bit about that one. This person, Indra, her dad was arrested and she knew her mom was probably going to face a tight financial situation. Their whole family would because her father was the breadwinner of the family. So she just kind of put out this call out on Twitter and she got a ton of likes and retweets on her original tweet and made 1500 bucks, which is more than enough to cover that gas expense for her mom to drive from Houston to Georgia to visit their father. That was a very dire situation for her family. But I think the interesting thing is that even the smaller expenses mean a lot to some of the people who are putting these call-outs out, out there. Like Even if it is just a cup of coffee or a trip to the nail salon, I think what some of these people are saying is that just because you are in this very difficult financial situation doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to like live as a human just like other people do. And I think that's kind of the thinking or the point behind putting out these social media calls in the first place. And I think Nicole Silverberg, who I spoke to, who's a writer for Full Frontal with Tim at the Bee, she made that point. She was like, it doesn't put out Twitter call-ups and be like, here, if you need something and you're from like a marginalized community, if you're like a person of color or trans, put out these calls and she'll be like, if you need something, I can Venmo you money. Right. She very much wanted to emphasize the point that no matter how small the expense is, if it makes that person's life a little bit easier, like she wants to do that for people. Let's talk a little bit about this shift in the way young millennials and Generation Z, their attitudes about money and labor, because nothing really is not monetized. I mean, if you have any type of niche hobby or some type of lifestyle thing, or you do have a YouTube page, you know, that's this whole notion of YouTubers and things. I'm going to keep making these videos, subscribe to me, give me some money, help me out so I can continue making these things. And this is kind of an extension of that almost where you're putting your social presence out there and asking people to help you back financially. Specifically, a lot of the people I talk to are activists in their communities and a lot of the work they do is unpaid. And so sometimes the only recourse they have to make ends meet is to ask people online for help and support. And I think that's why there are platforms like Patreon and Kickstarter um, and these asks on Twitter or Instagram for payment through Venmo or Cash App. Venmo is owned by PayPal. Cash App is owned by Square. I think they say 40 million people use Venmo and about 15 million monthly users are using the Cash app. How have they responded to all of this, to people raising money on their platforms? The people I spoke to at Venmo, they basically said that Venmo isn't really designed for that. It isn't really designed for crowdfunding because it's made for people to Venmo their friends for a bill or for a utility bill or to split a tab for drinks. It's not necessarily to receive money from strangers. And, you know, once you make a payment to someone, you can't really reverse that payment. Keeping that in mind when you're making a payment on Venmo. Venmo pointed to some lighthearted moments. We all seen <laughs> that one college kid who had his sign, you know, give me beer money. And then a bunch of people sent him a bunch of cash for that stuff. So, I mean, really, it all probably depends, too, on the person giving the money. It's like if it's something that, hey, you know, I got a couple bucks to throw on that. Maybe I'll do it. My producer, Miranda, had a uh, comedian that she followed on Twitter and he fell on some hard times. He needed some money for uh, some medical bills or something. 
And he's like, if everybody gives me three bucks, I'll be great. And that was something she, you know, she laughed at his tweets before and something she totally wanted to do. So, you know, it also depends on, on the person on the receiving end. They want to help out more power to them on that. No, I think that's the perfect example of what's happening, right? Like someone who has a network on Twitter or some following on Twitter or some other social media website. And, you know, they're just reaching out to the people who know them online for help. Suhana Hussein, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>